Hello, this is Alex Burkett, and you're listening to the Long Game Podcast. This episode is a part of our Kitchen Side series where we pull back the curtain and show you the behind the scenes conversations, debates, strategies, and brainstorming sessions that we have at our agency. In this episode, we do a deep dive on surround sound SEO. Surround sound SEO is a methodology that aims to monopolize SERPs for a high intent keyword so that a brand appears everywhere at important stages in the customer journey. We talk about how we did this while working at HubSpot, tactical recommendations, in the weeds recommendations for brands hoping to invest in this methodology today, and also speculate as to how surround sound may fit into a world of generative search results. We also cover account-based marketing and sales enablement, and really get to the bottom of how consumers, how humans make decisions. Anyway, this was a great conversation. Let's get into it. Okay, so something that content marketers <laughs> will say and do say is, you know, instead of looking at keywords, right, like keywords are old school, nobody does SEO anymore. If you want to map business impact towards your content, if you want to get immediate value from your content, what are you going to do? You're going to talk to the sales team, you're going to figure out what their sales objectives are, and you're going to create sales enablement content that addresses those objections. That's all good in theory, right? Yeah, sounds pretty straightforward. I feel like there's a lot of these ideas in content where it's like they sound great if you just take it at surface value and then you think about it for like 10 seconds and you're like, wait, how do we know that works? Like, how, like are, is the sales team using this content? Is that content shortening sales cycles or closing deals? How do we know? Is there a way to track that? And then I, because well, I'm doing sales now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't send people content. I, they find content, right? Like that's a big reason people come to us in the first place. And that's more from the general lens of acquisition content, not necessarily sales enablement. But I'm trying to think like, all right, talking to a lead, we do a discovery call, figure out there's an opportunity and there's a match. They're within our SCP. They've got the budget. They've got the need. We go through a couple more conversations and we, we need to nurture them. There's, you know, like maybe they're not responding to emails as quickly. Um, this is the point at which I think content marketers would be like, send them a piece of content. What do yeah, I send them? them? Like, I'm just trying to think of like, what do I send? Like, is, is if I yeah. send them a blog post about our barbell strategy, are they suddenly going to be like, nice. Didn't believe that you were smart before, but now that I see that you've written a blog post about the barbell strategy, I'm going to, I'm going to pay you. Like, is that how they make well, decisions? They might not say that, but there might be something subconscious. And this is like all speculation. I found that. So I do share content and in my follow-up emails now, but it's like case studies or mm. if someone, if we have something in our conversation and I'm like, oh, I wrote a blog post about that. Let me share this because it's, re- it's relevant and it shares my thoughts versus me just speaking at you. So the type of content I share is case studies. Like, Even if they don't ask, I know that in most cases they're going to ask down the line. So I just share it in my, my first follow-up email after a discovery call. Like, hey, just in case you're curious, here's some case studies just showing the type of work we do and the impact that we've had. And here's a, a blog post about our barbell strategy, which kind of underlies our how we build content strategy. And there were cases where maybe on discovery call, the prospect is saying like, yeah, we worked with this other agency and we grew a lot of traffic, but we're not getting any leads from it. And I'm like, oh, I wrote a blog post about that. I call it the traffic trap mm, where you're optimizing okay. for traffic 
but you, you ultimately like traffic doesn't pay the bills. And so I share that blog post and they're like, oh my God, this like accurately describes my situation. I'm like, yeah, we, we work with many clients who go through this and that builds trust. And I've only had one or two people call that out before. They're like, I really appreciated that. I felt seen type of thing. No, I think, I think what that does is it's taking a common uh, problem or like a common framework and applying like almost a contrarian or thought leadership take on it. And I think that can be really valuable. Um, the example that I was talking about before was um, website redesigns, right? One of our clients talks about website redesigns. That's I come from the conversion optimization space. Uh, it's, it's always been a hot button issue and CRO agencies for years have been saying, don't do a radical website redesign just because you feel like it. Like there are better iterative ways to get to the same outcome and eliminating or mitigating a massive amount of risk, right? And most of it is through like uh, discrete A-B tests. Like you can rope those together for different pages and experiences. You can do message testing. You can basically validate a bunch of this stuff before you launch it to 100% of your audience. And then, which is what happens in most cases, like tank your conversions by 50% or whatever. So people who would be thinking, all right, web design, web, website redesign, that's like this theme, that's this like shibboleth in the industry. Your thought leadership, your sales enablement may be thinking about doing a web redesign. Consider this route instead. And it's like your unique process or your unique framework on that. And I think that's pretty similar to like the traffic trap, which is like, all right, go for traffic, grow traffic. Business results aren't coming in. Why? Yeah. And you're like, here's, here's a, f a framework that I've discovered for this problem. <clears throat> that you're yeah. dealing with. Yeah. But then when we go back and think about the type of content the marketing team usually creates for sales teams as quote sales enablement content, it's, and then they complain about the sales team not using it. It's like, well, if it was valuable, they, there's probably no question that they would use it. Like maybe you're producing the wrong type of stuff. And what I see people creating in the name of like lead generation is really basic ebooks where mm. they get it they get an email that they call a lead and they're like hey these people they're, they're not actually like qualified and when you look at the type of content they produce it's, it's like an ebook about what is product analytics or like the guide to product analytics and it's like oh okay you i mean this is just an, an example but let's say they work at amplitude and they're trying to sell to like head heads of data or heads of analytics like a guide about analytics is not going to be it's not going to capture them. It's going to capture people who don't know anything about analytics. And so there's a complete mismatch in the topic matter. But just because the format is an ebook that's gated, people think that that's what gets them like qualified leads. So there's like, I think there's something that needs to be decoupled there where it's like, what do our buyers care about? Write about that stuff and gate it versus like, what's a topic that we should write about and like gating it and just not thinking about the intent. Or, or even for that example, like the what is product analytics, there there could be merit to ranking for that term and having an ebook for that term. I think though, what we're talking about is like the sales. Like once you've established contact with the salesperson, it's like why would you why would you rope all the way back to the initial starting point of the entire customer yeah. journey once you're already in a sales conversation, which assumes that they are not only problem aware but at least somewhat solution aware, right? They probably understand the landscape to an extent they're talking to you. Um, they probably understand a couple of competitors. So now it's like, all right, how do you like iron out objectives or uh, um, objectives? What, what word am I looking for? Points. <laughs> Pain points from there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Are yeah. We marketers. 
Uh, I don't know the I words the, anymore. The I think the companies that do this really well are the technical software companies. Like mm-hmm. I think of um, Oso, who who we work with, and they have a page that's like why use Oso or like why software authorization is like hard to build, and it goes through like here are all the different ways people have tried to approach this problem and the flaws in all of them. Here is the way we we solve it and why like you should work with us like. And here's the flaw. Here are the flaws in how we work, but we also remove a lot of the work. Mm-hmm. And that's something where I'm like, oh, someone building out the authorization layer in a software is going to read this article and be like, wow, this person's thought through all the challenges I'm currently thinking through, and they have a solution. I should like consider this product. Like, that's really amazing content to share with someone who like you can't you can't explain all these different ways of approaching authorization on a call, but. They might want to read it and then understand your thought process, which builds trust and all of that. Yeah, yeah. I do kind of I want really like technical there, but yeah. No, no, that's that's actually an amazing example. I, I was just listening to April Dunford's podcast, um, uh, the positioning one, and uh, I didn't listen to the whole thing, but part of it was talking about uh, reducing risk or the perception of risk, which we talked about in our last kitchen side. Fundamentally, most B2B decisions, at the very least, are made with uh, a lot of fear of fucking up. (laughs) So I think it's at that stage where you're trying to reduce the perception of, like, I'm going to make a mistake. Um, And you can do that through many different ways. Like a lot, it's like actually a lot of product information. Like, does this do the thing that I want it to do? Does it integrate with the things that I want it to integrate with? Does it have the data privacy and security features that like, I'm going to need to get this through procurement. So a lot of that information is not going to show up in search results or search data, but like, that's going to be important to push through to that final buying decision. One thing that I was thinking about too is like, it depends on your product, but like at this stage, maybe one of the best things you can do is like, um, show the product, right? Like an interactive demo. And I, I guess that's not the same thing as our content and SEO. We don't think about that as content and SEO, um, but things like Nevatic and, and Reprise, yeah. right? Like if you can actually like showcase a couple features and say like, hey, this thing works and it works in this way and other people have done it like this. Case studies, right? Like that's another thing that's like other companies like you or who you, like, who you want to be like, who you aspire towards yeah. have worked with us and have gotten success from this. It's like, you're trying to iron out some of those doubts at that last step. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it's getting me to think more about what type of content we should be producing to help with the sales process. Like if there's patterns or questions that come up in every sales call, because when I think about the type of stuff that I see other teams produce, in the name of sales enablement it's like it's not this type of stuff we're talking about which is and it's ironic because I think the more technical products they sell they sell it developers or engineers and they have like a whole documentation section right like that's that is that company's way of reducing risk like hey here's all our documentation and how our product works so that you can feel comfortable knowing like how you're going to be integrating it with like whatever product you're building. Like, I wonder how we can take a cue from that and apply that to maybe less of the technical products mm-hmm. to reduce that fear and perception of risk. You know, so that's what? probably going to like product documentation. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know what? Hilariously, one of the most effective lead magnets and sales enablement things is for enterprise SaaS. So those, those Gartner reports. Like you have yeah. to buy a license to basically give them out as downloads. And there's tons of um, 
stipulations in like the ways you can use them and like put put even putting like Gartner's logo on your site. Like there's there's they have tons of rules around this stuff. Um, but they basically they they've got um, the entire enterprise software industry basically held hostage because it's so effective <laughs> as as, as a, a trust mechanism. And I've seen it firsthand. Like it 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 really does. It really does work never, for a certain class I of buyer. Didn't, I didn't understand that before. Like when I was at uh, my last company, People AI, I remember the product and marketing team spent so much time on like the Forrester wave report and like speaking to analysts and stuff. And I was just like, okay, cool. They're doing their thing. Like surely it's important. But now I, I kind of get it more like, oh, people actually really do just rely on these reports, these analyst reports to make a decision. Because I mm -hmm. guess the thinking is they do all the heavy lifting for you so that you don't need to start with you're not evaluating 20 options you're evaluating maybe three yeah these reports you know it's, it's so crazy so i, I won't speak specifically to gartner and forrester uh one because i think they do hire quite a few actual analysts who do mm -hmm. actual analysis <laughs> but i also think they're quite sensitive on on the whole uh, uh disparaging their name thing so mm -hmm. be careful here but like did you know um in maybe more of a consumer context do you know anything about the better business bureau I heard that it's like not actually like a real official entity. It's like I, I wouldn't personally like I would never call them a scam. Like personally, I would never say. I almost use that word. <laughs> I would never say that they're kind of extortionary and like a little bit of a bullshit scam. But some people would. Some people would yeah. say that, you know. But like a lot of yeah, consumers I, don't know that they think it's a governmental organization that just protects the consumer. Wait, yeah, explain more. Factually, that's not true. <laughs> it's the word bureau, I think. That, like, it is. <laughs> well, okay, so like it's been a long time since I've worked in a consumer space, but when I did, like we dealt with that because like we were on the Better Business Bureau. And back then, all I can remember is that there was a lot of pay to play. A lot of payola going on. But like there's a lot of these trust symbols um that garner a like lot you. of attention and like just a <laughs> I think the consumer's perception is very different from the reality of how, like, the underlying, how these things actually work, which is often not as, um, <laughs> not as altruistic as you would imagine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All I know of Better Business Bureau is it's like, if you scroll down to the footer of a lot of websites, it has like a badge there or something. Um, and what you're, you're saying that you can pay to use that? I'm not sure what you have to pay for. Um, I don't remember specifically. I think that may have been one of those things. I don't want to get this wrong uh, again because yeah. it's probably been, um, God, almost like nine, eight, eight or nine years since since I've, I've dove into this world. But um, I, I remember, it, it, like, what I remember is that it was not as straightforward as like the BBB does, like a review of every aspect of your business and gives you a score out of the goodness of their hearts. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff like that, man. Like, like if you dive down in the, you know, like Michelin stars, like that was initially a way to sell uh, more tires. Tires, yeah. Yeah, like. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it reminds. I mean, this takes me back to during the pandemic when I was watching a lot of Netflix and Seaspiracy talks about how, like, they'll put this whatever like dolphin safe logo on tuna cans, and actually turns out that there was actually no verification um of business practices i'm like oh i bet there's a lot of shit like that in the world where if you just take it at face value and trust it you can just be blissfully ignorant but once you realize that a lot of these things aren't as they appear 
you kind of become i i personally became a bit skeptical of all these oh man see. <laughs> once once you understand how broadly applicable the term propaganda is you're like oh wait like do you know anything about recycling uh not really Okay, I think this was on the My First Million podcast, but a lot of what we believe to be true about recycling was actually a result of like campaigns from huge companies. I think like Exxon and, and Shell and, and companies who traditionally have not been known as like the most green companies for the environment, right? And it was really like the objective was to draw the attention to the consumer and place fault on the consumer. That was actually in Seaspiracy, I believe, as well. A lot of that talk on like how a lot of the environmental burden was placed on basically like. 2% of the equation, which is what you individually do. But even when it comes down to recycling itself, I, I, I haven't researched this to the extent that I should have. I'm just speaking uh, extemporaneously, is that the word? Um, on the spot. Um, you can only recycle plastic like two or three times, or like it's a very like finite amount. Um, and doing so more than that, like doesn't do anything additional, like for the environment. Like there's all these things, like where we spend so much time like separating our recycling and all this stuff, and then it gets thrown yeah. in the fucking landfill anyway. Yeah, I think I forget which company. There's like a consulting company I like, worked with those larger corporations that was like, hey, if let's make it make let's make consumers believe that they are the ones responsible for reducing pollution and like reducing carbon emissions and all that stuff and i mean it worked lo and behold like you you get hit with that message enough times from so many people and i guess this might be a segue to your surround sound topic but like <laughs> you start believing it right like and then once you once you realize like wait it's these big corporations that aren't regulated that's causing the majority of the pollution and everything then it's like wait why are why are we made to feel like we're responsible i mean we should still do our part i think like i still recycle whenever i can and like reuse stuff but that's always the question like, too is like no, knowing this fact. knowing all of this do you still recycle and the answer is well yeah for sure <laughs> yeah I, I try um i mean i i heard and it, this needs to be verified like i remember hearing like historically china would buy our recyclables but they don't anymore and so there's nowhere to actually put our recyclables, like as as a country, and so it all kind of goes to the same dump. Mm -hmm. I really wish we had like a, a thing. podcast producer, somebody who who could fact check us live. Because <laughs> right yeah, now I'm like, wait, we've said a lot of stuff here. Well, anyway, all that said, it could all be wrong. I, I await comments on like our inaccuracies, but I think, I think the, the cool thing is like the takeaway is like there's a lot of messaging going on around us that leads us to believe something yeah like that that's my takeaway the the take and this flows into the surround sound stuff that we wanted to talk about i think one one thing that i'm it's it's a very first principles idea that i'm always thinking about is like how do we know what to believe and what information do we use to make decisions and how do consumers make decisions this is evolving like that's the craziest thing about generative ai for me is like it's not everybody's got their like predictions, which, you know, you know what I think about those. Um, <laughs> they give more to the predictor than to anybody reading it. Um, but one thing's true in, in, is, is that um, it is changing how people consume information and how people trust information. And maybe not at this point, but it will, right? Like, it, it, the, the question that I ask is like a content marketer and SEO is like, if, if 
generative AI can surface pretty quick, pretty accurate answers. What is the value of content? And what is the value of creating new content? Like what is the emergent value that needs to happen in order for us to stay on top of things and continue to add emergent value? Like su such that like generative AI couldn't do, right? Um, but so the surround sound, let's go to the surround sound because this is something concrete. Um, the surround sound strategy is something that we developed at HubSpot. Um, it was, so the, the synopsis is, in traditional SEO, you want to try to rank your content for a high value keyword. And the better the intent, so like if you could rank, let's say you could rank a product page for a product related keyword. That's the bull, center of the bullseye. Um, and then you've got this whole customer journey landscape that flows up to the top of the funnel where you're trying to attract people in, trying to educate them down, and eventually they become aware of your product. That's like kind of the synopsis of content in SEO. <laughs> So the surround sound strategy is saying like, hey, what if we like chopped off the top of the funnel for now, looked at the highest intent terms that are mostly at the consideration stage when they're looking and comparing among different products. And we really thought about how consumers are making decisions at that stage. Like if they're searching for live chat software, you can look at the search results now. And it's not a bunch of product pages. It's actually a bunch of review sites and it's a bunch of uh, affiliate bloggers and listicles and other companies are writing blog posts that are like, here's the 19 best live chat software solutions in 2023. And there's a bunch of long tail variants of this, like best live chat software for small businesses. And you can go on and on, like it, it fractures out into a million pieces. But in those search results, you got to think like this person's searching for a bunch of options, right? They're not just looking for, they don't know that they're looking for HubSpot. They don't know that they're looking for uh, Olark, if that's still a live chat software, um, <laughs> they're trying to get like five, seven, ten. They're trying to get a handful of options, and then they're going to go into that comparison stage where they're going to use information like we just talked about, case studies, product specs, interactive demos, et cetera, to choose among those different products. But the goal of this stage is to bring salience to your product, to your company, and to get into the initial set of conversation, to get into the initial set of comparisons. So the surround sound strategy said, Let's map out all of these important keywords, the ones that are decently high traffic enough to make it worth it, the ones that are high enough intent, and let's not just rank HubSpot. Let's, get, let's have HubSpot appear in every single search result. The SERP monopoly strategy, uh, I believe Nick Eubanks called it. And that was something that we worked on in 2020 or something like that, 2019. Irina was largely responsible for scaling that out. HubSpot, I think, really operationalized it and executed it in a way that a lot of other companies struggle to do um, because it's really like there's a multifactorial problem. It's like, you know, you can't just reach out to G2 and say, hey, um, I'm a new startup in this space. We make CRM software. Can you put us up on the top of that, please? <laughs> and even affiliate bloggers, you can't just be like, hey, uh, can you remove that top listing that makes you 10K a month and put us up there? <laughs> you can't really do that, right? So there, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we did at HubSpot that made it effective. Um, and we can talk about those specifics, but the other thing that I wanted to talk about is now there's a huge tie in with generative search, right? Cause what generative search is doing is it's not just taking your standard ranking signals. It's not just taking the number of backlinks and the quality of backlinks and the on-page content. So when you, when you search for best live chat software, now it's not just listing the, the, the best 10 optimized pages for that search intent. It's summarizing a bunch of the information that's been written about best live chat software. And it's giving you a couple answers. And of course, it's sourcing this from URLs. But like now, it seems like there's a whole multitude of factors that wasn't considered before. So then, I, I've yet to spend a lot of time on this piece. That, that now becomes 
When you talk about the surround sound, I think about all those different websites that rank for best live chat software as points of influence. Like every link that someone clicks on when they're evaluating live chat software, each article is going to either, if you're trying to be on, like if you're on them, uh, the more list you're on, the more influence you have and like the more reason for the searcher to believe that you are the best product. If you're absent from a list, someone they're gonna maybe look at other products. And now when I think about the search generative experience, that's now another medium to influence the decision, but I don't think anyone's really figured out how you show up there yet. So I guess that's a big question. How do you show up there? <laughs> I think the hardest part about that question is that we don't actually, I mean, I don't know, maybe other people do. I don't know what goes into, I don't know what inputs they're looking at to come up with those answers. Right. I, I can assume that it's a large basis of text analysis. Like they can look for like the frequency and like the importance. I don't know. I mean, maybe Google's using other signals, like what social media mentions there are. Like I have no idea, but like my, my first principles assumption to all of this is that all of the things that are good for brand awareness in general are probably good for being included on the generative search experience. Right. Like if you're mentioned uh, in in text strings with the category keyword that you want to be mentioned for, not just on blog posts, not just on your own blog, not just on your homepage, but in conversations on social, on review sites, all across the web, even if you didn't get surfaced in the answer that Google gives you with generative search, like I still feel like that would be useful just from a, well, holy shit, like this company's appearing everywhere in relation to this category that I'm searching for. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I just did a search for best live chat software and two of the three links that show up in the generative AI modal are not in like the top 20 search results. Hmm. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. So that, that was something that perplexed me a little bit too, because we did the surround sound strategy for um, best podcast, best content marketing podcasts. And uh, I think we're in all the lists. We're pretty much there. And then we appear on the feature snippet. And then for the generative response, uh, we are in it, but we're very, very, very low. So I was like, <laughs> how do we optimize that? <laughs> well, before we talk about generative search, maybe I could give you a couple tactical things that are actually really yeah. useful for the surround sound, the old school way. Okay. First off, you have to define your category. And, and, and the best possible way to do that is to narrow your chunk to the smallest possible sliver of your category because it's going to be very hard to compete in existing things like best CRM and for us, like best SEO agencies. So, right, like we're, we're mainly competing in the B2B space. So like a better opportunity for us would be best B2B SEO agencies, at least to start. And then you can kind of ladder your way up unless you're already at the top. If you're HubSpot, if you're Salesforce, et cetera, then compete away. Cause you're probably already like pretty, you're probably already monopolizing those terms and you just need to like, you know, plug the gaps. Um, you can use a tool like SEMrush. They have the surround sound SEO tool and you can plug in the keywords and basically plug in your domain and your brand name and they'll figure out where you're listed on the top 20, top 30, I think search results, where you're mentioned and where you're linked. So it covers both of those. It's just the text and there's also the hyperlink and then you can find the gaps. And then when it comes to the gaps, they're typically going to be three types of pages. Uh, it's going to be editorial, which includes affiliate as well as bloggers, as well as other companies that are writing these listicles. There's going to be review sites, uh, G2, Captera, uh, GetApp, all of those companies. And then there's going to be product pages, and those are increasingly rare uh, uh, on these search results pages. And there's different tactics to get into these. 
you're not going to get into somebody else's product page and you're unlikely to rank your product page. So I'd focus on the former two, principally the editorial, uh, because the review sites like harder to fake. I mean, you can pay to play on certain sites like Captera. That might be a worthwhile endeavor, especially if it's a small enough category to make that worth it. Uh, that's, that's between you and your paid marketing team and your product marketing team. Um, G2, you generally have to drive enough review velocity and positive reviews to compete in a category. And I think there may be a pay to play. I'm not totally sure how their business model works nowadays. Uh, but those aren't going to be primarily like SEO and content efforts. Now, the affiliate stuff. Um, so you're going to have affiliate bloggers. You're going to have editorial, just random company blogs. Like there's going to be a mixture of different kind of like incentive structures. The affiliates want money. So essentially, you're not going to be able to say, <clears throat> hey, pretty please, like we're a much better product. I'll let you try the product out. Affiliate bloggers do not want to try your product. Like they, they, they want to do as little as possible to, to I mean, I'm speaking in generalities, of course, but like they're getting emails like this all day. Like they can't try 10,000 products, right? So if you come with a better offer, and obviously the product's got to be pretty good uh, in order to capture the attention in the first place. But if you're like, hey, everybody else is doing 25% affiliate kickbacks, we're going to do 35, 35%, and that's going to be in perpetuity. Um, or we'll do a paid placement, right? It's going to be monetary. And then the editorial side, this is the fun stuff. Um, I'm talking a lot. Do you want to chime in at go any point? Or? No, All right, cool. <laughs> I have stuff to add once you, once you move away, because I think there's other channels to, to do surround sound, but continue. Yeah, yeah. So the editorial stuff, I'm just going to give some hacks. Um, so if you have a domain that's powerful, you should write your own listicles. First off, that is the most important thing. It's the easiest way to do it. And then you can control the analytics. You, you can see the analytics. You can control the CTAs and the placement. Um, even if you don't have a powerful domain, do that anyway. And do that with different uh, listicles that are related but not competitive to your space. So if you're writing, if you're a CRM, write about the best marketing automation software because those companies are going to be maybe in the same space but slightly competitive and then what you can do is leverage those lists because you could partner with those other companies and then you can if they have lists already you can ask to be on those in exchange for you putting them on yours right or you can partner with them and write lists on their sites and they people call this parasite seo now you can leverage you can be a parasite on a larger domain and <laughs> <laughs> I'm just giving all the tips. Um, but yeah, you could, let's say, like, um, let's just use HubSpot as an example because I'm just using their word, their brand everywhere. But HubSpot's got a very powerful domain. And if they didn't already write a list about, let's say, best AI chatbot tools, you could be like, hey, I'll write a free guest post for that. We just want to put ourselves at the top. We're a, we're a great chatbot tool. We'll let you write a guest post for us too. Or like, we'll put you on our list. Or you, you have to have some sort of a leverage. So those have been the main effective ways that I've done it. It hasn't been through mass scale outreach or like asking pretty please or like, hey, update your post with us. It's been through what's in it for me. That's the most important question. Yeah, you feel like you gave away like all the secrets. But I guess mm -hmm. the round sounds like pretty well-known strategy. I already gave now. the secrets away in all those blog posts. Yeah, you've, you've, yeah and like the, I mean, it did like a course, I think, for CXL. That's all the thing with all this stuff, by the way, is like you can give all the secrets away and like the hard part is like doing it. Yeah. And you touched a lot on like the content side and like SEO. So if someone's searching for a certain query, you're going to show up because you've gotten listed on all the other lists on the top 10 search results and you have affiliates writing about you and all that stuff. I think there's another uh, group of channels that people typically will call it like ABM or something where it's like 
taking it from a more like top down, uh, yeah, I'll say top down approach where like SEO is bottoms up, like you're gonna get a large mass of people searching for this type of product and you'll show up, but you don't really get to choose who, who you're targeting. Whereas for ABM, you're like, you're choosing who you want to target and you're figuring out how to surround sound a specific person or people at a certain company, mm. maybe by running LinkedIn retargeting ads, like showing your content and case studies and things like that. And so maybe they're already searching for these queries, but then you can also make sure that you're, you're showing up on other channels besides search results, like showing up on LinkedIn or like sponsoring a newsletter that you know your ICP likely reads or sponsoring podcasts and stuff like that. That that's like if you have a lot of money, of course, because you're, you're going to need to throw a lot of money at that. Whereas I think what you shared, there is some monetary aspect, but you don't have to always pay to play. Like there's there's room to to do it in a more bootstrapped way. Yeah, you know, uh, it's funny. I forgot to mention that, but I initially got the idea for the surround sound strategy. And I'm pretty sure I stole the word itself from Tim Ferriss. Because I think oh. he was interviewed or like had written a blog post uh, for Ramit Sadie. On, it, he runs Growth Lab. Is that the thing? Yeah. Or yeah. You to be rich. yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, I mean, I noticed it before I had read the article about the tactic, about the strategy. Um, but he, he, basically, Tim Ferriss and other authors, when they were launching a book, they would find all of the similar podcasts that like somebody like... Like David, you you may listen to All In podcast and also My First Million and also Sam Harris and also Joe Rogan. I don't know. <laughs> There's a cluster. Like you can get this data, right? Like this is audience research research 101. Um, and you just you appear on all those podcasts. Like if you're writing a book, like obviously you have something to say. So they just get interviewed, right? Like that's they're just it's their time they're spending. But you were saying, like, if you have the money, you could do the same thing with ads. And I think a lot of companies, especially earlier on, uh, more of the D to C brands seem to have done that, like Athletic Greens, yeah, and ButcherBox and Peak Tea. Like a lot of those brands did that very well. Uh, they would just surround a certain like smaller niche, and you would listen to five podcasts, and you're like, "Damn, ButcherBox is everywhere." Yeah, yeah. I think this is. I mean, this is my interpretation of. When I think about digital PR, like I think some people call digital PR just it's just back link building. But when I think of digital PR, it's like it's just taking what a PR firm would do traditionally and just like show up online everywhere versus showing up on billboards and like train stations and commercials. How do you just show up everywhere that your ICP is spending your time online? Yeah, and this is uh, it's actually like historical advertising wisdom. It's like you, you want like the message itself to resonate with your target audience, but then the, uh, like uh, media buyers would always talk about frequency and reach. So yeah. the reach is how many or who you're who you're targeting, but there was also the frequency component, which is how many times did that person see the message, right? Because yeah. it wasn't like after one time they're like, oh, I got to sign up for this. It's usually after like five, six, seven, where they're like, seems pretty interesting. Yeah, and even on the flip side, like once you've already made the decision, so I. I take a similar approach where if I'm recommended a movie or a show or a book, until I get, I hear about it like five times, I don't really listen to recommendations. But then one example that's recent is The Bear. Like, I think Sam on our team mentioned The Bear, yeah. and then someone else mentioned The Bear, and someone else mentioned it, and then I got nominated for all these awards. I'm like, okay, this is, this is beyond a tipping point. And now that I'm watching it, I'll mention I'm watching it to other people, and they're like, oh, yeah, I love that. So the surround sound continues like mm. to validate like, oh, it's a good choice for me to now watch this show. Oh, that's so interesting. Book. Yeah. And it like it makes you dig your heels in more like, oh, I made the right choice. 
post-purchase so, rationalization. That's that's something yeah. we always talked about in e-commerce. You know, you wanted yeah. not just to like close the the sale. You, you didn't just want to sell the blender. You wanted to make sure five days after the person didn't regret it. Yeah. So when you think about, I guess in SaaS, like maybe after a year or something, like say you you got a customer, they're with you for a year, probably evaluating other solutions. But if if they go looking for other solutions and seeing if they can replace you, but you still show up as like the top option, then you're probably going to be like, well, there's no better option. If they're like showing up on all these recommendation lists, I probably can't find anything better. Like as much as frustrated as I am now, I'm probably going to be more frustrated if I choose another solution. So it, it's also like a retention play in a strange, like probably not very difficult to measure that, but thinking about it psychologically, it, it reinforces that you are the best option. I've never thought of that. That's a really good point to add. <clears throat> I also wanted to add with your uh, point on the bear, it made me think that the other factor in this is not just the frequency of mentions or of appearances. It's also the amplitude of, of each mention. So like it's the, the magnitude of like how much you trust that individual. Cause I, I was, I, I gave this talk, um, at, at growth marketing uh, stage. And, um, the example that I used was the book sapiens, <laughs> which was really popular a couple of years ago, but I heard it recommended everywhere. Uh, and I also listened to, uh, you've all know a Harari and a ton of podcasts. And then I remember it was Pep Laya who was like, yo, I'm reading this book sapiens. It's awesome. And I really respect Pep and his book recommendations. So eventually I was like, yo, I got to check this out. And, um, I was talking to a friend the other day about how, how I source book recommendations. Um, because I'm the type that buys too many books, um, so I'm I'm trying to really like pare down and prioritize and, and really maximize my time reading instead of just like a, a expansive like reading a lot of trash. Um, and you get a lot of book recommendations, but there's like I like I trust you, David. Actually, uh, when you say I should read a book, whether it's business or sci-fi, I think those are the categories that I think it's like I I I trust your recommendations because you don't give them lightly. You know my tastes. And I think you've got depth in those areas. So like they're like, if you say those, I'm going to wait that at, let's say like utility units, like the average person, a rando that I've never met in my life, they might be a one they're going to be like a five or 10. And I'm going to like weight that a little bit higher. So it's like, you could obviously apply that to other areas. You know, if t people love Tim Ferriss's recommendations, like he, <laughs> he could, I don't know if he does affiliate stuff or if he ever has, but he could be the greatest affiliate marketer of all time. People wanted his ads, right? He did this experiment where he turned them off and people were like, no, I, I really want to know what you recommend, you know? Oh, yeah. So maybe appearing on Tim Ferriss's show is worth like 100 points and like a different podcast with a similar reach is like worth 20. And it's hard to parse those things out in some cases. But I think like with search results, you can kind of tell like G2 is probably worth quite a bit more than your average affiliate blogger. Yeah comparably hard to get onto those lists though. Yeah. I think that was heavy. That was, wait, wait, that was one more thing. Can, can I add one more on surround yeah. sound? And this yeah. is more of, of a speculation, but I think what I enjoy about, um, generative search results is that because it's a black box in terms of like, I, I gave a bunch of tactics that you could use to basically do parasite SEO to like, even if your product is not as good, you could still get into the top 10 search results if you're strategic. If you're like, I'm going to go for a narrower, longer tail keyword class, and I'm going to leverage a partner or a friendly website, like you could, you could feasibly do that. Yeah. I don't think you can do that with generative search answers. 
I think there's oh, yeah. so many other signals that matter. You can't just pay the AI <laughs> no. to list you. <laughs> and because we don't know exactly what the inputs are, I, I, I say this word all the time, it's harder to fake, yeah. which is kind of cool. You know? And who knows how much the people are going to trust those generative answers. I would imagine that it's going to be the starting point. That's how I use it right now. It's like, all right, what's the quick answer? And then I'll dive deeper. And that's probably you know, in B2B. Like you're usually not going to just make like a fucking point-blank decision based on one listicle. It's, you're just getting the starting point for your comparison but i'm very curious to see how this this plays out with the generative answers yeah the cool thing about marketing in general is we can share all the the tricks and hacks and tips and all that but it's not easy to do like surround sound is going to be very difficult even if you're at hubspot like you still need to get the buy-in and make all this and do all the outreach and like do the negotiation and all that stuff and i it's going to be even 10 or 100 times more difficult if you don't have that sort of brand that you're working for. But what I'm excited about is if folks who hear this stuff or take the courses with like CXL go and do this stuff and then they're like, oh shit, it works. <laughs> like we're, we're on other like best agencies lists and people will fill out a contact form and say they found us on another website's list. Mm. And I'm like, oh shit, it's working. <laughs> it's so true. But that, that point really is important on like giving, I, that's why I've never been really shy around giving away like tactics like this because yeah. we, we talked about this on a former kitchen side too. Like we're both doing martial arts now, like you're, you're in Muay Thai and I'm on the ground doing jujitsu and I started doing private lessons, which by the way, huge unlock, huge, huge unlock. Like you learn so much faster. Um, but we're doing all the foundations. Like he, he's very adamant. My coach is very adamant on, um, like every time I ask questions, I'm like, what do, you, what do you do next? Or what's the other person do? He's like, hey, 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 hold on. Just practice this thing a thousand times and then we'll move on to the next thing. But the things we're doing, like if you watched it on a video, uh, for any jiu-jitsu nerds, like a, a scissor sweep or a pendulum sweep, they're very simple. But then, so like you practice it with a partner, you're going slow and it's like, oh damn, this is so easy. And then you try it when you're rolling and you're like, oh my God, this is so much harder to do. <laughs> wait, can we reset? <laughs> yeah, so can you slow down? Just say, wait, let me, let me put my leg here quick. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's so much harder to do than it is to like conceptualize something. Yeah. Yeah. I've done some sparring and like, I don't, I don't do much sparring and I've just gotten into it maybe once or twice now. And I'm used to just punching a bag and bag don't punch back. But when you're sparring, even though it's not like, actual finding i'll like get a hit to the face or to the stomach and i'm like oh i don't know what to do now <laughs> so that's I, don't know, I, I think there's a lot of uh a lot of parallels in just when it comes to work because when as we're building a business or if we're running marketing it's not just doing it in a silo like there's competitors that we need to react to there's people who are uh, trying to run the same strategies as well, maybe even better that we need to kind of get ahead of. So it's a good reminder for folks to like, just start doing shit. Like don't think about all these different tactics and get paralyzed by where to start. Just start somewhere and then figure it out from, from there. So something too, that I wanted to add, um, on the sharing openly of like secrets on tactics and whatnot is either harder to execute than in theory. Like you can read a book, like people read self-help books all the time and they still don't know how to like, have a good relationship, right? Like it's, it's harder to do yeah. things. But, um, the other thing is I think there's merit in understanding that a lot of success is going to come come through a lot of plateaus and boredom and simply doing the same things over and over again. Um, 
John Henry and I were talking about this, and he's he sent me a link. I can't remember who had said it, but it was talk, talking about how like real work is grinding. Like it's <laughs> it's a lot of just grinding and doing a lot of what what most people would consider very boring things over and over again, and through repeatedly doing good boring things and executing, that's really like the pathway to these outcomes that you want. And I think I'm <laughs> I'm very. Um, I'm very doubtful of, of a lot of people's ability to maintain that composure and that persistence when things are not necessarily like sharp spikes of, of yeah. you know, traffic or, or results instantly. Like go, going through that plateau is really hard. So I, th I think yeah. that's something I wanted to point out with this stuff too. Yeah. I think a lot of, I think about that a lot. I'm kind of feeling that recently. I mean, we've, we've had some pretty big months and I've been working a lot and I'm like, wow, this is, this is the fucking grind. It's just like, wake up, walk my dog, like, all right, time to get at it and work and then have lunch, get back to work. I don't have many evenings now because I'm going to Muay Thai or working out, but that's like also another, a different grind, I suppose. But we're just, in, we're just in it right now and it feels good. And I like hearing from other people who are also in it, whether they're business owners or like practitioners, like individual contributors. I just love hearing what they're working on. So people need to hit us up more and talk about what they're working on. I kind of love it right now. I was thinking about that. Like I'm, I'm grinding every day at work and I'm grinding through jujitsu. And usually I'm like the type of person who historically like kind of gallivanted around the world doing like museums and like different travels. And I, I'm going to take a vacation eventually. Um, we've talked about that. <laughs> but when I th thought about it, I was like, I actually don't really like, I, I, I wouldn't really enjoy just like going to fuck around and like, Spain right now. I don't I, like. I, I would yeah. like. It would still be fun, but like, I'm I'm actually deriving more pleasure from like the the mundane grinding. At least right now, I I think yeah. it's if you can learn to enjoy it. That's that's so so clutch. Yeah. All right. This was a good one. Shall we call it? Yeah.